Well, before we turn to our study in the Gospel of John, I just want to mention something we've been praying for for the last several months. A man by the name of John Terpstra passed into the presence of his Lord last night. And he was attended by his family and by our dear brother, Daniel Slootweg. So I thought it would be fitting for us to pray and bless God for his kindness and the life of John, his reception of John, and also for those he's left behind. So let us pray. Our gracious God and our Holy Father, we know that you are most high, that you are glorious, that you are wondrous, that you have purposed to save a great multitude that no man can number. We know as well that this brother was yours, and we know that his suffering, his pain, his sorrows have now ceased as he's passed into the presence of his gracious Lord and Savior. And we rejoice in this, God. We give all praise and glory to you. We ask that you would bless his family, those loved ones that he's left behind. We pray that those who are in Christ would grieve, but not as the world uh, grieves, knowing that he is in a better place. Those who are unsaved in his family, may we, or we pray that they would seek after his Lord and his Savior, and that they would know the Lord Jesus Christ by grace through faith in him. Lord, thank you that though we do die physically, we die well. And we pass into the presence of that one who lived for us, who died for us, and who was raised again for us. And we thank you so very much for what we have in the gospel of our salvation. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you can turn in your Bibles to the gospel according to John as we continue our exposition in this fourth gospel. Our focus this morning will be verses 7 to 11, but I want to read verses 1 to 11. John 14, beginning in verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for the written word. We know it's given by inspiration of God, that it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. And as we look at this passage today, may we see the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, the expressed image of the, the invisible God, the, 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 the blessed Savior of sinners. And may it be the case that our hearts would be drawn out in worship and in praise and adoration. We ask that you would guide us now by the Holy Spirit, that you would illumine our minds and hearts to receive these things. And for any and all who've come here this morning that are dead in their trespasses and sins, we don't appeal to them to exercise their free will, but we appeal to the God of free grace and power and majesty. And we ask that you would exercise that, that power in making men willing to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Forgive us for all sin and all unrighteousness, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we find ourselves in what has been called the upper room discourse. Our Lord Jesus Christ is about to die. This is the day before Good Friday. And so he takes this opportunity to encourage his disciples, to comfort his disciples, and as well to instruct his disciples, because they're going to go out and make disciples of all the nations, baptize those disciples made, and then teach those disciples to observe all that the Lord had commanded. In fact, if you drop down for just a moment in verse 12, you'll notice, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. 
and greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So the foundation of a statement like that, specifically the mission of the apostles, is grounded in the mission of the Son. And so we see that revelation here specifically in verses 1 to 11. It's about who Jesus is, specifically related to the Father. So I want to look first at the identity of the Son in verse 7, and then secondly, the unity he has with the Father in verses 8 to 11. But note first in terms of the identity. So this is connected. We stopped last week at verse 6. Verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We've had a week off, but Jesus didn't take a week off. He continued to speak. He continued to exhort. He continued to instruct. He continued to teach them. And so in verse 7, he says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. So again, that's something that speaks concerning his identity, his identification, who he is. I think verse 6 tells us what he does. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He does what he does by virtue of the fact he is who he is. In other words, if he's not the divine Son, if he is not one with the Father, if he is not the glorious Lord of glory, then he's not able to do what he says he's able to do in verse 6. Now, up to this point, we have lots of prior revelation concerning the identity of the Son. We have the prologue, chapter 1, verse 1 to verse 18. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We have verse 18 in the prologue. No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the, of the Father, has declared Him. And then from the prologue, we move into the public ministry, chapter 1, verse 19, all the way to chapter 12 at verse 50. And a recurring emphasis in that section is on who Jesus is. He uh, stresses his identi uh, identity. He is the one sent by the Father. He maintains this special relation to the Father. And so all throughout the public ministry, we see his emphasis on his identification, such that at various times, the unbelieving Jews, they pick up stones to throw at him. In chapter 5 and chapter 8, chapter 10, why? Because they understood the claim that he was making. They understood that he, being a man, made himself equal to God. And then in the Passion narrative, so beginning in chapter 13, verse 1, and continuing to chapter 20 and verse 31, we see a similar emphasis. Again, the one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, must be one who's able to deliver the goods. If he is not who he says he is, then he can't do what he says he does in verse 6. So it's absolutely crucial that we get what's going on in verses 7 to 11. So the previous revelation concerning the Son, now here notice, specifically in verse 7, he speaks of the knowledge of the Son, the knowledge that others have of him. Notice in verse 7, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also, and from now on you know him and have seen him. So what is Jesus saying there? He is saying the knowledge of the Son is the knowledge of the Father. Brethren, that's not a statement any other person could ever make. We can tell people about the Father. We can instruct people from the Word of God. But it's not the case that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But that is precisely what our Lord Jesus Christ is saying. The mission of Christ was the revelation of the Father. That last bit in John 1, 18. No one has seen uh, God at any time, but the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father. What has he done? He has declared him. Now, there is in this statement, uh, and he's going to stress this in a moment, unity between the Father and the Son. There's also distinction between the Father and the Son. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. They are distinguished by what we call eternal relations of origin. The Father is unbegotten, the Son is begotten by the Father, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. I'm going to tell you at the outset, we're going to do a bit of theology this morning, because we need to get what's going on here, specifically in John's Gospel with reference to the Father and the Son. 
So notice in that first place, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. And then he says, and from now on, you know him and have seen him. Cyril makes the good observation that the revelation of God's law at Sinai basically pulled Israel out of polytheism to serve the one and true living God. But the revelation in the gospel makes clear the Holy Trinity. Not that the Trinity is absent in the Old Testament, but the Trinity is in blazing glory in the pages of the New Testament. One of the best proofs of the Trinity is the mission of the Son and the mission of the Spirit. It shows us the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so with reference to this, we realize that in the gospel, when we look at Jesus, we are looking at the Father. And so when he says, from now on, you know him and have seen him, interpreters kind of bat that phrase around, from now on. I think it's easiest to understand it related to the incarnation. From now on, in the coming of the word made flesh, from now on in the life and the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus, from now on in the fulfillment of the covenant promises of God, which are yea and amen in him, from now on, the way of approach to the Father is through the Son. So functionally, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then in terms of his nature or identification or who he is, he says that I am the revelation of the Father himself. Now we move on to his emphasis on the unity with his Father in verses 8 to 11. We saw a bit of confusion in verse 5 with Th Thomas. Thomas said to him, Lord, we, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Well, after a bomb like verse 7, you'd kind of expect a bit of confusion as well. I mean, listen to what Jesus says in verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. Again, no one can say that, the, the, the way that Jesus can say that. We can tell you about, we can point you to, we can open the scriptures, but we cannot say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus does this, and on the heels of that, we have a request by the disciple in verse 8. Philip, now Philip was the man who led Nathanael to the Lord Jesus Christ in John 1, verses 43 to 46. Nathaniel was given revelation by, the, uh, by God to make that declaration, truly you are the Son of God. So again, the, the disciples weren't completely foreign or oblivious to these things. They saw these things, they, they understood insofar as it went, but still they're walking around with a man, a man who breathed, a man who had hair, a man who had feet a man who got weary, a man who drank water, a man who ate food, a man who sorrowed, a man who would suffer, a man who would bleed, a man who would die. So we can grant them or indulge them a bit for their, for their ignorance at certain points in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, Philip here asks the question in verse 8, and it sets the stage for the answer in verses eight to, uh, uh, 9 to 11. So Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Now, notice that uh, Philip's not asking only for himself. Show us, and it's sufficient for us. So in a sense, Philip is functioning as the spokesman of the others. In other words, Lord, we, we really kind of don't understand what you're saying. We're not really picking up what you're putting down. And I actually think that behind this is Exodus 33, that scene where Moses says to God Most High, show me your glory. So on the one hand, it's a declaration of confusion, but on the other hand, it's a declaration of what should be uppermost in the hearts of all creatures, not just believers, but all men everywhere. Show me your glory. In other words, the creature should want to see the creator. The creature should want to commune with the creator. The creature should want and desire to know him. Why? Because we're made in his image. Why? Because he's good. Why? Because he's kind. Why? Because he gives us food. He gives us water. He gives us houses. He gives us the sun. He gives us the waves. He bedecks this created order with all kinds of splendor. And when we see that, it should lead us to want him. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, what's better, the gift that you receive under the tree or the giver of the gift? 
The gift is simply a token of the love of the giver. When your husband hands you flowers on Valentine's Day, it's not the flowers that's the terminus, it's your husband. It's how wonderful he is, how attractive he is, how handsome he is. You see, it's not necessarily the gift that we end with, but the gift leads us to the giver. So on the one hand, it's a statement concerning their conf uh, confusion, but on the other hand, it is what we should be asking. Now, we don't ask that because we sin. We don't ask that because in Adam, all die. We don't ask that because in that connection to Adam, we turn the back to God rather than bow to God. We don't even like to retain the knowledge of God in our thoughts, according to Paul in Romans chapter one. But by virtue of our creation under the creator, we should long to see him. We should long to, to know him. We should long to benefit even more so by the smiling face that he has for his creatures. So confusion, but as well, a great expression of what ought to be in the hearts of men. Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Now, that brings us to the revelation of the Father in verses 9 to 11. just want to remind you of a statement I read at the outset of our study here in the Upper Room Discourse. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson made the observation concerning chapters 13 to 16, what we call the Upper Room Discourse. He says, I've often reflected on the rather obvious thought that when his disciples were about to have the world collapse in on them, and they were. This isn't, you know, some meeting where Jesus imparts a few nuggets of wisdom to them. They go out and, you know, uh, sell a few shares or, you know, make a few investments, and then they live on easy street for the rest of their lives. Study what happened to the early apostles. Study what happened to Peter when they wanted to crucify him. And he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Lord. So they crucified him upside down. John the Apostle ends up on the island of Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Do you realize he ended up on that rock, which is essentially a prison, that he ended up there after they had tried to boil him to death? I always thought, you know, that the boiling to death would pretty much seal the deal. Didn't know you could survive that, but he did. And so he ends up on this rock out in the middle of nowhere for the word of God and the testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you look at these apostles, the world is going to collapse in on them. And I think that that helps us to appreciate the way or the direction that Jesus goes and shed some light on Ferguson's observation. I've often reflected on the rather obvious thought that when his disciples were about to have the world collapse in on them, our Lord spent so much time in the upper room speaking to them about the mystery of the Trinity. Now, when you hear that word mystery, don't think secret, think impenetrable. When you hear the word mystery, don't think, oh, that's just for a handful of doctors and reverends in the life of the church. No, think that God the infinite cannot be fully explored by man the finite. Mystery is one of the glories of our religion, because if we could figure out our God completely, we would be as God. God is comprehensible only to himself. Now he makes known through 31 plus thousand propositions in the Bible what we are and can believe about him. But in terms of the divine nature, in terms of the divine essence, in terms of the triune, uh, triunity of persons in that divine essence, revelation informs us, but it doesn't exhaust the theme. So back to Ferguson. He says, if anything could underline the necessity of Trinitarianism for practical Christianity, that must surely be it. The world's about to collapse and the nuggets of wisdom aren't, you know, get strapped, load up some canned hams in the pantry because things are going to get tough. No, the way that he equips them is by revealing his glory. The way he equips them is by showing who he is. The way he equips them and us today is by the beauty and splendor of his person. And then that brings us to his reproof and then revelation of the father. Notice in verse nine, the reproof here isn't screaming at them. He doesn't pick up a phone and chuck it at them. No, but he makes this statement in verse nine. Have, have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? Now we won't blame the apostles for not having the prologue. They didn't. 
But they had the public ministry. They had his declaration. They had verse 6. They had all those things that he had been informing them of. So, so essentially, it's, I, I've been with you this long. I, I've been telling you these things so long. And, and, and you still don't understand it. You see that along the way, you know, amongst the, amongst the disciples. Now, I don't think that's for us to pile on the disciples. I, I think it, in a kind of weird, indirect way, should encourage us. Right? We don't come out of the womb of regeneration, you know, a John Calvin. We don't come out of the womb of regeneration, an Apostle Paul. We don't come out of the womb of regeneration, already a PhD in Bible and theology. We, we, we grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, 2 Peter 3.18. We, we move forward. We try to listen. We try to pay attention. We read our Bibles. We, we read our confession. We read good books. So he's not piling on them. But again, I think he's underscoring the point. They didn't understand, not because he hadn't told them. He had told them repeatedly. He had told them to the point that when the unbelieving Jews were around, they would pick up stones to throw at him for blasphemy in light of Leviticus 24, 14. So now notice, in terms of the revelation of the Father, and this we'll spend the rest of the time, he does three things here. First, he highlights the nature of the Son. Secondly, he highlights the words of the Son. And then thirdly, he highlights the works of the Son. And again, this validates or this demonstrates or confirms his claim to being the only begotten Son of the Father, the one who has the same nature. It validates that, that later Nicene formulation, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, one in substance with the Father, one that is consubstantial with him. So notice, first, with reference to the nature of the Son, you see that in 9b and 10a. As I said, we're going to do a bit of theology here. There's not going to be a quiz afterwards. I'm going to use a Greek word in a moment. Just kind of preparing everybody. You know, give your thigh a bit of a squeeze and make sure you're awake so that, you know, it's your fault, not my fault if you don't get it. Just, just kidding. So we're going to move slowly because I want you to understand this. So nature of the sun in 9b and 10a. And he does two things here. If you're taking notes, we're really getting over in the margin now. There is the revelation of the Father in the Son, and then the relation of the Father to the Son. The revelation of the Father in the Son, verse 9b, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And then the relation of the Father to the Son in 10a, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? Again, brethren, we can't say that. We can say that the Holy Spirit dwells in us with absolute, positive, biblical propriety. But the Holy Spirit dwells in us by virtue of grace, by virtue of adoption, by virtue of our having been justified by faith. He doesn't indwell us by nature We don't have the same substance. We don't have the same essence. So for the Lord Jesus to say, the Father is in me and I am in the Father, that is a claim much more powerful than for us to say, I've got the Holy Spirit dwelling in my heart. But first, notice the revelation of the Father in verse 9b. He who has seen me has seen the Father. You can't say that, and I can't say that. I, I know that's the case. Please don't look at me to see the Father. Please look at Romans. Look at John. Look at Jesus. Look at, you know, I mean, John's gospel. Look in the Bible. Well, they'll see our, our, our great works, yeah, and give glory to God. Not our great faces. Not our shining example. Not our virtuous life. For the Lord Jesus to say in verse 9b, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? That is a monumental claim. The apostles picked that up in later New Testament documents, and they tell us amazing things like this. The Son is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15. The apostle says, he, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. 
Now, firstborn doesn't mean there that he was the first created being. Firstborn is a term of preeminence, a term of priority, a term of majesty. So he is the firstborn. In Colossians 2.9, we learn that the Son is the one in whom dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. What are the apostles doing? What's Paul doing here? He's commenting on verses like this. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? See, the world's religions don't offer that. Christianity alone has that. Christianity alone is the religion of I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Why? Because the me there has the nature of the Father. Because the me there has identification with the Father. Because the me there is God the Son. As well, in the book of Hebrews, the Son is the brightness of the Father's glory and the express image of his person. Hebrews 1.3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Again, we're created in the image of God, brethren, but we're not the express image of his person. We do not possess divinity. We do not have a divine nature. We do not have the divine essence. There is something fundamentally different between God the creator and man the creature. It's the distance between infinity and finitude. It's the distance between, you know, not just a chain of being. God's not just the best version of us. God's not the holy one of us. God is separate. God is in a different order. God is not like us. We're created in his image, but we're not the express image of his person. I've already alluded to the Nicene Creed. The Son is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. Brethren, you've probably heard, maybe from the Jehovah's Witnesses at your door, some other cultists, some other unorthodox heretics, well, you know, the doctrine of the Trinity, it was conceived at Nicaea. No, it was not conceived at Nicaea. It was recognized, defined, described, and delineated at Nicaea. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. Nicaea comes along and says, okay, how do we protect that statement from all the heretics? They come up with, not come up with, but they use the language, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father, through whom all things were made. There is something categorically different about the Word. He is God who assumed our humanity so that He could live for us, He could die for us, and He could be raised again for us. But He never alters, He never changes, there's never been a diminishment in terms of His divinity or His consubstantiality with the Father. And so the Lord Jesus makes this powerful statement to the, to the reproof of the disciples. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Now, then he goes on to the relation of the Father to the Son. Notice in verse 10a, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? Just to rehearse once again, the Spirit indwells the people of God. I'm not minimizing that. I'm not diminishing that. I'm not suggesting it isn't true. The Spirit indwells us by a gracious gift of God the Father and the Son. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Spirit takes up residence, if we can use that language, in the sinner's heart when he believes the gospel. And when that happens, we have the indwelling of the Spirit. But again, it's not by virtue of our, our same essence. It's not by virtue of our divinity. It's not by virtue of the fact that we have brought him into humanity. But rather, it's based on the grace of adoption. But that's not what's happening here in verse 10a. Do you not believe, and I love his language, What's he suggesting? You should believe this. Well, you know, the Trinity, it's really just sort of out there. It's not really essential to my Christian faith. It is the Christian faith. It's absolutely, positively, 100% essential. Jesus assumes that you're going to believe it. Jesus will later command that you believe it. So this idea that, well, it's just for the theologians, just for Athanasius, just for Augusta, just for those you know, guys that are coming to speak at the conference. It's for you and me, brethren. 
If we don't know our God, if we don't know our blessed Savior, how do we sing Psalm 46 without that knowledge of the triune God? How do we get through the troubles and the collapses in this present evil age without the knowledge of our blessed God, without knowing Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, without knowing the infinite, without knowing the creator, without knowing the redeemer? You think that nuggets to a successful life is going to help you pass through the valley of the shadow of death? What's going to help you pass through that? Well, the fact that Christ, my shepherd, is there with me, guiding me through it, but the knowledge of, our, of my blessed God. After this sermon or after this discourse, we have what's called the high priestly prayer in John 17, 3. Jesus says something, and again, assume something there that seems to have been lost on the church in our generation. He says, this is eternal life that they may have plenty of nuggets on how to wage their best life now. No, this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. If I could be so bold, nothing else really matters. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you should learn how to cook. You should learn a good skill, good trade, make money, love a woman, love a man, raise children, all that. Those are valuable things. But when it comes to that high priestly prayer, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. And again, what creature, what, what man that isn't the God-man could say that he's a compound object of knowledge with the Father? So notice our text specifically. Again, we're going to do a little bit of theology here. The Greek word is called perichoresis. Perichoresis. Again, no quiz, no exam, no verbal at the door. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? Perichoresis simply means mutual indwelling. Mutual indwelling. It means what the text says. Don't you believe that the Father is in me and I am in the Father? Mutual indwelling. It's a pretty easy concept. Well, what does it yield or what is the profit? What is the practical application? Well, it serves two purposes. One, it protects the unity of the divine essence, but it also highlights distinction among the persons. Remember, when we're dealing with God, there's a oneness and a threeness. The oneness is his essence or his substance, who he is. And then there is the threeness, again, who he is, but at the level of personhood, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our confession sets it up this way. It says, in this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences or persons, the Father, the Word or Son, and the Holy Spirit, of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. It's not like the divine essence is there and the Father accesses 33 and a third percent, the Son accesses 33 and a third percent, and then the Spirit accesses, no, 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 no. That's not the doctrine of the Trinity. He is one simple being who subsists eternally as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You say, well, you know, that's a bit tough for me to wrap around. Remember the word mystery? Remember the chasm that there is between the finite and the infinite? Remember the difference between creature and creator? Yeah, it's a mystery. We don't have that same being. We don't have that kind of an essence. We're not simple, we're not pure act, we're not God. So we would expect, I think, that God would be different than us. See, the problem in theology lies when we try to make God just like ourselves. We reason from the family, and we believe then that the father is, you know, the father, the son is the mother, and the spirit is the children. That's heresy, brethren. That's bad stuff. Very, 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 very bad stuff. Don't, don't do that. Okay, no bueno, just, just don't do that. We cannot argue from the creature to the creator without sacrificing the creator. It is to bring God down. Isn't it better to look at scripture and to try by God's grace and spirit to be built up a bit? To maybe go, wow, I guess I'm not as smart as I once thought I was. I guess I got a lot of study to do. I guess I gotta, better get busy with those 31,000 plus propositions in scripture and start reading. The, the works of the Lord are great. They are studied by all who delight in them. Psalm 112. So the word in Greek is perichoresis. The idea is mutual indwelling. 
The particular definition that Muller gives it is this. It refers primarily to the co-inherence of the persons of the Trinity in the divine essence and in each other, in such a way that each person is fully possessed of the entire divine essence. So again, it protects consubstantiality of the persons and the distinction of the persons. Stephen Duby makes the observation, one of the entailments of the Father, Son, and Spirit having one and the same divine essence is their mutual indwelling. In other words, it provides the basis upon which Jesus can say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And why he can say, the Father is in me and I am in the Father. We've got to get beyond creaturely analogies in verse 10a and reckon with the theology that is in there. As well, Emery, or again, Doobie says, the mutual indwelling is an implication of the essential unity. They each have the divine essence, yet not three essences. So it necessarily follows the Father's in the Son, and the Son is in the Father. Again, maintaining distinction among the two persons. Emery says, the mutual indwelling of the divine person shows their personal distinction in the most profound unity. Again, later theology reflected upon propositions in the scripture, and later theology got a lot right. But they didn't invent the doctrine. They didn't develop the truth. They didn't write John 14, 10. They rather understood the implications of John 14, 10, and then they wrote their commentary and theology in light of that, standing in awe at the glory of the one who says, the Father's in me and I am in the Father. Well, he does that by virtue of their essential unity. Now, to bring this a bit more practical, I've never thought Gill would be the practical in this particular lineup, but a little bit more so than Doobie or Emery at this point. He says, phrases, this father in me and, the and I'm in the father. He says, phrases which are expressive of the sameness of nature in the father and the son, of the son's perfect equality with the father. That's what he's doing. Why can he say he does verse 6? Why can he say he, who he is in verse 7? It's by virtue of his identity as the only begotten son of the father, who has the divine essence, just like the father, yet not two essences, just like the spirit, yet not three essences. In this divine and infinite being, there are three persons. That's the mystery of the Trinity, the glory of our religion, the truth we die for. That's what he's saying here. So back to Gil, of the Son's perfect equality with the Father, since the Son is as much in the Father as the Father is in the Son, and also of the personal distinction there is between them. For nothing with propriety can be said to be in itself. Remember, I mentioned this when we looked at John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Always, in Trinitarian theology, you're fighting two fronts. You're fighting what is called, we'll just summarize those two fronts. One is Arianism, which is basically uh, basic uh, subjugating the Lord Jesus to the Father. He's not fully God. He's not divine. He's not like the Father. There's not a consubstantiality between the two. Then there's something called Sabellianism or modalism, which gets rid of the distinctions of the persons. Isn't that interesting? John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, distinction, and the Word was God. Unity, identity, sameness of essence. So that's what 10a is doing in this particular section of Holy Scripture. So then Gill goes on to say, the Father must be distinct from the Son who is in him, and the Son must be distinct from the Father in whom he is. The Father and Son, though of one and the same nature, cannot be one and the same person. So at the level of essence or substance or God, there is one. At the level of person, there's three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this, incidentally, is how you sort of combat the Jehovah's Witnesses and say, well, that's a contradiction. You can't have one and three at the same time. Sure you can. If one is in one sense and three is in another sense, you can't have one in one sense and three in the same sense. I have one apple and three. You, you can't do that. But one in one sense and three in another sense. Now here, specifically in verse 10a, we see the, 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 the mutual indwelling, this perichoresis with reference to Father and the Son. 
But the Lord Jesus does not leave the Spirit out in the upper room discourse. Notice in John 14 at verse 16, I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper. I don't want to get all weird here, but there's two words in Greek that mean another. You've heard one of them. We call it heterodox. You've got orthodox, that means true. You've got unorthodox, that means wrong or bad. Heterodox is just kind of out there weird. It hasn't become fully bad, but it's on its fast track to being that. It's something other than dox. But then there's another word for another that means of the same kind. Which word do you think Jesus uses when he refers to the Spirit? The other kind or the same kind? So notice in John 14, specifically at verse 16, I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper, comforter, advocate, paraclete, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. And again, not to diminish the dwelling of the Spirit and the people of God, but it's by the grace of adoption. It's salvation through faith in Jesus. That's the means by which the Spirit is in the Father and in the Son because of the one essence. And then notice in verses 25 and 26. But this happened uh, that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes... Now notice, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. This is why we speak of the relation of the Spirit to the Father and the Son. Father's unbegotten, the Son is begotten, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Again, not a Nicene formulation built on thin air, but what the Scripture teaches. And if the Scripture teaches it, it must be believed, it must be preached, it must be died for. And you will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Notice in 15, 20, I'm sorry, uh, 16, 4 to 7. Well, 5 to 7. But now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of, right, uh, of righteousness and of judgment. So we see not just the Father and the Son. It's not a, you know, just a, a, a duality. It's a trinity of persons in the Godhead. It's a trinity of persons in the essence, the one divine essence. So that's what Jesus is saying. He gives that revelation in verse 9b. He who has seen me has seen the Father. And then he follows up by the relation that he bears to the Father in verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? Now, he now moves on to two further confirmations of this. Again, brethren, he's not standing there saying, you know, I'm the best cowboy there's ever been. I wrote this big bull one time. Nobody else could do it. That's not the nature of his claim. He's not saying, I was such a wonderful Air Force combat pilot. I, I flew F-16s. I, I flew the B-2 bomber. We went on. But he's not making that sort of a claim. He's making the claim to be of the same nature as God the Father. So again, if we think about ourselves and, you know, are slow to get things at times, and we sort of put ourselves into the disciples' shoes, we, we might just be scratching our heads going, what's he saying? This is huge. He is saying that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And the way that he proves that is by saying, I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. Well, Jesus knows that they're going to have these sorts of struggles as they're trying to receive these things into their created minds. So he gives them two proofs, two further confirmations, two further demonstrations, his words and his works. That's what we see in the remaining section in this passage. So 10a, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? I'm going to pony up two evidences right here, and I want you to follow that. That's the Jim Butler loose translation. But that's what he's doing. I've made this incredible assertion that I have the same nature as the Father. But this incredible assertion that I have the same nature as the Father isn't done in a vacuum. 
I didn't just sort of pull this out of the sky. I didn't just say I wrote the biggest bull there ever was. I, I actually did, to use the analogy. His words and his works. Look at the words of the son in 10b. The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own, own authority. Now, brethren, be careful of an Arian or a Sibelian, not Sibelian so much, mistake of saying, well, he's like an instrument or a conduit. Pastor Butler, you're preaching the word right now. That's, that's sort of an instrument. That's not the context, brethren. The context is his nature with the Father. The Father doesn't speak the word through the Son as an instrument or conduit. The Father speaks through the Son as having the same nature as the Son, such that the word that comes from God comes from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the one true and living God. Look at the testimony of others relative to this statement. Look at chapter 4. I've already mentioned 118, but look at chapter 4, specifically at verse 29. You've got the testimony of others along the way in John's gospel who saw this, the divine authority of his words, the divine authority behind his words. Notice in John 4, specifically at verse 28. And the woman left, uh, uh, the woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men, come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Why does she say that? Because he told her all things that she ever did. Who does that? God. Look at 668. 668, the departure of the would-be disciples, the part-time followers. Then Jesus says in verse 67, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now, whatever Peter meant there specifically, I think what John intends us to understand is that Jesus speaks not just like a preacher speaking the words of eternal life, but in that sort of context of Matthew, remember the summation of the Sermon on the Mount? What did the people do after Jesus finished teaching? Yeah, that was good. Yeah, I'd come back. Provided I didn't have a hangnail or something, you know, really debilitating to keep me out of church. Uh, yeah, yeah. They, they marveled. They were amazed. Why? Because he spoke as one having authority. Not, not like their scribes. Whatever good the scribes may have done, and I know we demonize them, they were the worst people in the world. There was probably a scribe at one point or other got something right. But they marveled because he spoke not as the scribes, but as one having authority. And then notice in 746. 746, this, this is his enemies. These are his haters. Do your haters and enemies describe you this way? You ever gotten a note like this on Twitter? You know, I despise your guts, but... This much I'll admit. Verse 46, the officers answered, no, no man ever spoke like this man. No one. Lots of rabbis, lots of tradition, lots of teaching. Moses in our history, Jeremiah in our history, Isaiah in our history, Elijah in our history, but, but no man ever spoke like this one. But what about the son? Look at 716. Jesus answered them and said, my doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. And again, not a difference, not separation, but by virtue of the unity of the essence, by virtue of the fact that the Father has the divine essence, the Son has the divine essence, the Spirit has the divine essence, yet not three essences, one essence, three persons. Notice in 826, 826, I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. And when it says that, again, it's spoken in the manner of men. Do, do you think the father and the son had, you know, Sunday school in heaven? Son, I want you to sit down at my feet and I want to teach you things. He's using language that you and I can understand, that we can process. He doesn't launch into a theological treatise here. Well, by virtue of the one essence and by virtue of the fact that I'm one of those persons, the Father is, and the he doesn't do that. He, he uses common parlance to, uh, to tell us about the authority of his word. And then notice as well in verse 47, he who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. Well, what words is he talking about? He's talking about his words. 
that are God's words. As Thomas says, the Father, therefore, who speaks in me is in me. Cyril of Alexandria says, you should realize that when you hear my words, you hear the words of the Father. So he sets forth this idea of perichoresis. He doesn't use that Greek term, but that's his meaning, mutual indwelling. I am in the Father, the Father is in me. Well, we can see that, we can confirm that, we can validate that based on the words that I speak. But then he continues in John 14 to highlight his works. It's not just his words, but his works. Notice again in verse 10, he makes this declaration after the words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. But then notice this declaration of mutual indwelling. But the Father who dwells in me does the works. Huh, what's he doing? He's confirming what he said in verse 7. He's confirming what he said in verse 9. He's confirming that he has the same nature as the Father. You see that or validate it by his words. You see that or you validate it by his works. And that's what he's saying. Again, it's not instrumentality or conduitness. He just picks Jesus because Jesus is a great fellow. So I'm going to go ahead and do these works through him. No, it's because Jesus has the divine essence. Now, in the gospel, you have seven signs, the water and the wine, the healing of the official son, the healing at the pool, the feeding of the 5,000, the walking on the water, the healing of the blind man, and the resurrection of Lazarus. You have the testimony of the son concerning his works. Turn back to John 5. John 5, after the healing at the pool, Verse 16, they want to kill him. They want to persecute him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. So what does Jesus do in verse 17? He makes himself equal with the Father. They were right to understand him that way. He says, my Father has been working until now, and, and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him. Now, again, I'm not saying it's okay that they wanted to kill him, but they understood the nature of his claim. See, there's many today that don't understand that. We call them Jehovah's Witnesses. Those are Arians. There's others out there, but they're kind of sometimes in the professing church, and we need to be careful of that. Arianism and Sabellianism hasn't died or haven't died. So we've got verse 517. Notice in verse 519, Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do, for whatever, the son, whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. Again, the point there is the stress or the emphasis upon the same essence. As Duby says, the Son does not do certain works after the Father has done other works. Rather, the persons affect the same work by their one operation. That's his point. That's what he's saying. That's where he now turns and finally the confirmation of this mutual indwelling and the exhortation to contemplate the works. Notice verse 10. I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Now notice in verse 11, this is a confirmation of what he has said. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father in me. Believe it because I said it. Believe it because I've shown it. Believe it because I've said it. You see, it's his nature, one with the Father, at the level of essence or substance, but as well, it's the words and the works that confirm it. And, and notice what he says there in verse 11. You can take this or leave it as you will, because all that's important is a happy life here and now. You know, as long as you feel good about yourself, you get up in the morning, you do good, be kind, be courteous. You're not Bonnie Henry. He's the Lord Jesus. Believe me, he says. In other words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's not a throwaway idea that Jesus is the mediator. That's, again, some and substance stuff of our religion. You need to believe this. You need to believe that the Son is in the Father and the Father is in the Son. Whether you understand perichoresis, mutual indwelling, or all those things that I said, you need to get this, that Jesus is both Son of God and God the Son. And that's the confirmation that he gives of this. And then he ends on, if not, then look at the works. 
You say, well, other men did works in the history of redemption that were absolutely amazing. Poole has a great response to that. I'm going to end here, and then we'll have a couple of thoughts and then close. He said, Elijah raised the Shunammite's dead child to life by prayer to God that he would do it. And the apostles bid the lame man arise and walk in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ's doctrine terminated in himself. He called men to believe in him. He wrought miracles by his own power and by a virtue proceeding out of and from himself through by or though by the power of his father also because he and his father were one in essence. That's what Jesus is talking about here. It's not some functional subordination. It's not some messed up Trinitarianism. We are witnessing what the later divines at Nicaea would describe as God of God, light of light, very God of very God, one in being with the Father, through whom all things were made, and through whom there is salvation. Our brother this morning was teaching on the doctrine of justification by faith, and I think we forget Again, again, this isn't, I know Latin, but I've seen it in enough books. Pro nobis. Pro nobis. It's a little phrase that means for us. There's a for us-ness about this idea of the Trinity. A for us-ness about the idea that Jesus is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. Because after it stresses his consubstantiality with the Father, after it stresses the fact that he made all things, it then says, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven. He took upon himself our humanity. He lived the life that we were supposed to do, exact, entire, perpetual, and personal obedience to the law of God in every one of its jots and tittles. And because we couldn't do that, he did it. And then he goes to the cross, why? To satisfy divine justice, to pay the penalty for our sin, to take upon himself that bruising, that crushing, that decimation that should be ours because of our violation of God's holy law. So brethren, let the, the, the idea of the Trinity and, and the glorious person of the Lord Jesus Christ always be mingled with that pro nobis, with that for us-ness about the work of the Redeemer on our behalf, that this God would go to these lengths to save us? Brethren, that is amazing grace, and it certainly is a sweet sound. And it ought to be the one that evokes the people of God to praise, to glorify, to honor, and to adore him. And if you're not the people of God, it should cause you to flee to him. He's the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. That stresses exclusivity to be sure. All other religions are false, but it highlights accessibility. We can get to the Father by virtue of his Son. And what the Bible tells us is to believe on him and we will be saved. So never forget the for us-ness about what Jesus Christ has done and who Jesus Christ is. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God and Holy Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this upper room and what Jesus teaches here concerning our, our triune God. And help us to stand in awe, help us to reflect upon these things and help us to give all praise and glory and worship unto you. And Lord, bless the proclamation of your gospel here and elsewhere. We pray that it would run swiftly and be glorified, that you would save from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and that a multitude would come to the Father through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit, singing the praises of God Most High. And we ask through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. Well, we'll stand and we'll sing a closing doxology, an ascription of praise and glory to our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 568 in the hymn book. We'll stand as we sing together.
grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Lord, thank you for this. Thank you for the Lord's house and the Lord's day and the Lord's people and for the blessed joy it is for us to gather together to sing your praises. We pray that you would go with us now, that we would know your peace, your nearness, your, your protection over us and help us, God, to be faithful in this present evil age, to shine as lights and to hold forth your word of truth. And we pray through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, please be seated for a brief time of meditation. <clears throat> 